I'm dumb again, naturally. When did you invite Sylvester Sloan to take part in this call, Paul? When Harrison Ford left. Yeah, we kicked Harrison Ford out because he was too irascible. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Red alert! All crew members report to battle stations. Red alert. Shields up. What shields? You Starfleet officers! Now start acting like it! Oh, it's just Garrick. Plain, simple, Garrick. Dax, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. The wormhole does bring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. And for Starfleet, one of our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here, Benji. Listen to The Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland, Paul Spataro, and Dr. Bill Robinson. Bloody hell. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the penultimate episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine to be covered on Listen to the Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast, a Two True Freaks presentation. As ever, I am Andrew Leyland and I am joined by my Cardassian occupationers for this episode, Dave Pascarella. The resistance will bring freedom. Bill Robinson. Screw you. And Paul Spataro. Thanks, Bill. Resistance is futile. The line must be drawn here. Yeah, no further. No uh, this episode, The Dogs of War, is episode 24 of season 7. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. But, Andrew, you're thinking, there's 26 episodes in a season. So how can this be the penultimate episode? To which I would reply, ah, lovely listener, the final episode of Deep Space Nine is 90 minutes long, and in production blocks counts as two episodes. So there you go. You always wanted to know that, didn't you? This episode has a story by Peter Allen Fields. Come on. It's wild, Steve. Wild. We're never going to get to do that again. Uh, but the teleplay was by René Echevarria and Ronald D. Moore. The episode was directed by Commander Captain Cisco himself, Avery Brooks. And it's notable for having Jeffrey Coombs play two parts, Brunt and Weyoun. But I'm sure we'll get into that later. Do we have any news? We laughingly refer to it as news, even though this episode won't air till July next year. Uh, I had texted you guys or sent you a message about a fan film I discovered at work yesterday, uh, Star Trek Final Frontier. I had didn't haven't had a chance to watch it fully. It seems to be taking place when April, when Robert April took command of the Enterprise. I watched the first few minutes. Uh, a, uh, I mean, the special effects are, you know, they're, it's a fan film. I'm not quite sure how it got made. I haven't dug into the, to the, what wears and what whatevers because of you know that certain lawsuit that from uh, the movie Annexar, um, that I thought nixed all fan film productions, but maybe this one was grandfathered in. Don't know, but it's what is it? Uh, it's Star Trek Final Frontier. Or first frontier. Well, I guess that would kind of be important. No. <laughs> and I assume none of you have looked at it since I sent that. No. Or no because oh, Bill sent a message. Oh, well, I, no, no, I, I looked at your message with great interest because normally you don't steer us wrong with these things. But you know, you did include a link. 
That's because I was at work and I was, ta- I was yeah, on my phone. stop you watching a two-hour Star Trek fan <laughs> film, though, did it? I didn't watch it because I was at work. <laughs> I looked at it. I watched the opening. Yeah, and I, yeah, I clicked yeah. through it because I was working and I was I was on a break. Yeah, 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 yeah. You and Ross Geller. Exactly. I will look it up right as we speak. I will look it up and double check as we're talking. Okay. Alright, uh, do we have anything else? Oh, we've got a release date for Discovery. Let me rephrase that for the people who are listening to this in real time. Discovery's third season is finished. Oh, really? Did we like it? Um, I don't know yet, because it fell through a wormhole and I haven't managed to watch it. This but tell you what, Dave... thing kills me. Dave Wheater, I will, allow, I will give you options. Yes, it was much better than season two, and I liked it wholeheartedly. Or, alternatively, oh no, it's still crap. There you go, Dave, you've got choices in editing. I'll let you decide which one you want to go with. Release the Weeder Cut. Yeah, release the Weeder Cut. (laughs) I'm looking forward to season three. One of the complaints that we always had about Discovery, whether we liked it or didn't like it, and I liked first season, felt the second season went off the boil a bit, that we felt it was tied too much, its hands were tied too much by its setting of ten years before the original Star Trek. And just by watching it, and it, this is one of those things I've said before, my 14-year-old daughter, is not, she's not 14 anymore, she's nearly 18. Bloody hell, where does time go? My 18-year-old daughter is not a Star Trek fan, but she is aware of all the different iterations of Star Trek because, hey, she's grown up with me. And I was watching Discovery, and she was sat there kind of semi-watching it while she was on her phone, and she looked up at it and said, that's not the bridge of the Enterprise. And if an 18-year-old is saying that's not the bridge of the Enterprise, maybe you've got a problem with the new set and the lighting and shit. And I get all of that. I get all of the arguments. Production values from the 1960s would not hold up today, blah, 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 blah. Yes, but those sets would if lit properly. Yes. And making the bridge of the Enterprise, Pike's Enterprise, look like Chris Pine's Enterprise bridge just gave me this weird disconnect that this isn't happening in the same universe that we all grew up watching. Now, if you're going to jump forward however many years they're jumping forward so that the show is now off on its own beyond anything else we've seen, I think this will free up the writers to not be constantly bound by that need to fit into canon or continuity or whatever you want to call it. And I think that's a good thing. Do you think the writers kind of, or not the writers, the showrunners had considered this all along, that at some point they're going to jump it into the future? No. Do you know what I think happened? Originally, when Discovery was pitched and sold, CBS was two distinct entities, and the Star Trek television shows and the Star Trek movies were owned by different parts of the same company. Those companies have since merged back together. And I think the Discovery writers have gone, right, we can now do the show that we wanted to do, which is take the series forward beyond the 24th, 25th century. I don't think they had this planned, but I think it's a a happenstance, lucky happenstance that the two companies have merged back together. I have no proof for that. I can't back that up with receipts, but I think that's what's happened. Okay. That's very possible. I, I don't know. Uh... Yeah, but, you know, the whole thing with me about the, you know, prequel thing is just adding in Michael Burnham 
And then if you want to be a slave to continuity, which I do, explaining away why we've never encountered her in any way. So if you kind of had it planned that she was going to the future, it would make sense. But, you know, that doesn't mean that they even cared about continuity going into this with her. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think shoehorning her in to be another child of Sarek was problematic from the beginning because we'd already gone through that with Cybok and that wasn't greeted with universal acclaim by the fan base. So doing it again with Michael Burnham seemed a bit silly to me and especially seen as the first season of Discovery, less so the second season when they brought in Pike. But there's nothing in the first season of Discovery that could not have happened 20, 30, 50 years easily and you could have actually had her be another one of Spock's protégés like Savick and Valeris and we'd have all gone yeah okay Spock seems to have a thing for young pretty women okay no problem but having her be an ad- another adoptive child of Sarek and Amanda who grew up with Spock and there's just so many places you can go well alright where was she for the Falto Pan in Star Trek 3 where was she when he goes home for the um, the Amok Time ceremony in Amok Time. Where was she when he went home in the animated episode yesteryear? Where was Michael Burnham for all of that? And it's 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 even more of a continuity implant than saying there was a completely new Starship Enterprise that you just never saw. Because you can kind of hand wave Enterprise and say, yeah, all right, there was a Jonathan Archer that was never mentioned. But to introduce a new child into Sarek and Amanda's home that was raised as Spock's sister essentially that was just yeah that essentially was never mentioned is you know what I mean I mean I'm not as slavish to continuity if they give you a good reason for that happening but I never I didn't buy it and it just felt like it did feel like a bit of well it takes place in Star Trek canon because look she's Sarek and Amanda's daughter and I'm like no she's not Oh, you know, you would have had to have killed her off with a negative death. That well, we don't talk about her. Yeah, yeah, and, and again, <laughs> he went down that route with Cybok, and I can't believe anyone looked at Star Trek Five, which I don't think is awful. I think has some very good ideas in it, but I can't think anyone looked at Star Trek Five and said, "Yeah, you know that thing that did everything that Star Trek Five got right and wrong, that thing with Cybok, that's the thing we're going to do again." And you're like, really? That's what you took away from Star Trek V? That's the thing that we're going to do again. We're going to give Spock another hidden related relation. And I'm like, oh, okay, all right. But I went with it, because, yeah, the maybe, first season was Maybe they thought we're okay. going to do it right this time. Yeah, but did they, though? I didn't say they did it. I said that's what they <laughs> thought. So hopefully it will it will get back to being a bit more Star Trekian in its exploration and ideas. I mean, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Okay. I found a link. I put it on... I sent it to you. I you found did? an. I Yes, I found an article. I will read this real quick. This is from giantfreakingrobot.com by Drew Deitch. Ditch? Ditch? Whatever. Uh, I want to give credit where credit is due. Star Trek First Frontier is a brand new fa- fan film released on YouTube. The new feature link... Pro- Production tells the story of the initial launch of the USS Enterprise under the command of Captain Robert April. His wife, Sarah April, is also part of the crew and is the very first chief medical officer on the Enterprise. You can watch First 
first frontier right now. Da da da. Uh, da, 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 da. Director Kenneth Smith, who I also believe stars in it, says he wanted to create a film that would honor the original timeline and canon of Star Trek. His decision was to tell the story of the original Enterprise crew, since it is a storyline that has never been explored. The, ne- the connections to Star Trek canon are legitimate, going back to Star Trek, the animated series episode, the, the counterclock incident. Robert April and his wife Sarah both appear in that episode. Captain Robert April was also referenced in the Star Trek Discovery episode Choose Your Pain, which watching Star Trek Discovery could be said to be choosing your pain, depending on which season you watch. He was considered one of Starfleet's most decorated captains, though we have never really delved too deep into his personal history or his Starfleet record. As far as your creative avenues to explore, the story of Captain Robert April at the very first uh, U.S. And the very first USS Enterprise crew is a good one. So we're, uh, we're, we're eliminating uh, Enterprise from the uh, from canon then, in, in favor of the new Matrix. Mm-hmm. Well, so, so with this a, a a series that they did for four seasons, you know, with with professional uh, production values, we're throwing out the window in order to take a two-hour fan film and replace it. And you know, there's no way contradicts Robert Axel. Hold on, Siri was asking me a question. It said, "It also says it is nice to see such a passionate fan base that wants to respect the original incarnation of the show. Ever since the J.J. Abrams reboot back in 2009, the franchise has trended towards more and more modern depictions of technology. Seeing a fan film that attempts to recreate the old charm, uh, the old school charm of Star Trek: The Original Series, is like cuddling up with a warm blanket." So, so there you go. I have watched like the first five to seven minutes, skimmed through the rest. So, I mean, it looked interesting. Sounds good. So okay. maybe, maybe next time we'll perhaps a year from now there'll it. be a buzz about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> After this yeah. episode airs. Now that everybody has heard about this, too late, <laughs> and YouTube has probably removed it at this point. Yeah. CBS hit them with a lawsuit, and now it's not coming well, out. Well, that was in the... Co- I did read some of the comments below, and it was saying that there was something about it was grandfathered, or I don't know. That's why we may all want to watch it quickly and then maybe throw a blurb up on Facebook and... To- Go on to that downloading videos off YouTube site and save it. Oh. Mm. Anyway, that's it for news. As far as we know, I don't know, something could have happened in nine months in between us recording this and releasing it, who can say... Uh, the Dogs of War. Deep behind enemy lines. Surrender yourself or die. The fight for freedom. We've got to do something. Has become a losing battle on the next Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Is this episode of Star Trek. The guest cast is a who's who of Star Trek people. Casey Biggs, Jeffrey Coombs, Aaron Eisenberg, Max Grudenchik, J.G. Hertzler, Barry Jenner, Salome Jens, Penny Johnson-Gerald, Chase Masterson, Andrew J. Robinson, Wallace Shawn, Cecilia Adams, and Tiny Ron all return to their roles, as we've seen many, many times before. So it, it is a checklist of everyone who's great in Star Trek. Jeffrey Coombs particularly deserves note for this one. The plot, as read off Wikipedia, is as such. The Cardassian Rebellion, headed by former legate Demar, suffers a severe blow when Demar is stranded with Garrick and Kira on Cardassia Prime, and the rebel bases are destroyed. 
The Dominion proudly announces the crushing of the rebellion and the Cardassian Union names Demar's replacement, Legat Broker. Demar Garrick. Legat Benny. Is that his new name? Demar Garrick and Kira hide in the home of Mila. Garrick's former caretaker. With the encouragement of Kira, the three bomber Jemhadar barracks, where Damar reveals to the people that he is not dead, as Dominion propaganda claimed. He then calls upon the Cardassian populace to rise up against the Dominion, even though the organized military resistance is gone, and a massive civilian revolution begins. So, so did he come out and say, I'm not dead yet? <laughs> I got better! Got better! On Deep Space Nine, Quark receives a message from the Grand Nagus Zek, apparently informing him that he's been chosen as Zek's successor upon his imminent retirement. Upon a visit from his old rival Brunt, he discovers that Zek, presumably under the influence of Quark's mother Ishka, has instituted a number of reforms, including promoting workers' rights, environmental protection, and outlawing monopolies. What filth is this?! Quark is so disgusted by these violations of old Ferengi tradition that he threatens to turn down the job. Upon Zek's arrival to name his successor, he discovered that he was never intended to be the Grand Nagus. It was Quark's brother, Ron. Quark is still extremely unimpressed and in a monologue swears to turn his bar into a refuge for the old unrestrained capitalism that was symbolic of Ferenginar, though he admits that his brother is better suited to be the leader of the new Ferenginar. At Dominion headquarters on Cardassia, the female changeling, Weyoun, Broker and Breen representative Thought Pran what? Notes Federation has overcome the Breen weapon and resolved to make a strategic withdrawal, hoping that the Federation and its allies will leave them alone long enough for them to rebuild their fleets. Despite the position, they still believe in the final victory. Captain Sisko anticipates this. He and Chancellor Martok press for a final assault to be launched upon Cardassia Prime to end the war. Admiral Ross and the Romulan representative reluctantly agree. Later that day, Sisko's wife Cassidy tells him that she is pregnant and she is concerned by a warning from the prophets that Sisko, as the emissary, must walk his path alone. Sisko attempts to comfort her, which is how she ended up pregnant in the first place. The end. Wait, uh, this, yeah. there was something really important in this episode that was left out of the synopsis. Yes, they get a new Defiant. No! Well, get, oh, okay, go on. What about Bashir? And, mm-hmm. uh... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a whole subplot about uh, Bashir being a waste of space wet rag. Um, Esri just going, oh, well, I like you and you like me and well, maybe we could like each other together and Worf taking the piss out of them, which is the best thing about the episode. Worf taking you know, the piss out. You, you know, what... what Somebody should edit in the scene where 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 they come into ops and they're making out on the turbo lift and then Worf presses the button and it goes back down. They should show a scene to where that the the elevator is jettisoned out of the bottom of the station. <laughs> that would have been great. It is a good day to die. Uh, I I genuinely like this episode. I think it's and, really good. And, it, and then they cut back to Worf and he says, "And Jadzia said I had no sense of humor." I think it juggles all the various plots and subplots exceptionally well. I was not looking forward to the return of the Grand Nagus. The Ferengi episode's normally been at the bottom of the pile when I come to my ratings, but I felt that the humour of that subplot balanced what was going on with Kira and Garrick really well. And the only downside to it was uh, Julian and... Ezra, which was, it was tedious, but at least you had Worf being pissy about it, which was funny. And let's <laughs> be fair, they, they only dedicated a very short amount of time yeah, yeah, to yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's barely a C plot. 
is that? I, I think they felt like we need to resolve this and we need to give them their open quotations happy ending uh, that they can be a couple and you know they both found each other uh, but you know let's not waste too much time with it just move it on you know they went yeah. a little too cutesy with the you know them pretending like they don't care for each other or whatever, but you know so they moved it along quickly. Together. Goodbye, goodbye, Jed, Jed, not Jed, see, Ezri and uh, and Bashir. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, the the biggest thing about this one, I think, they get the USS Sao Paulo, which is um, basically the Defiant, and then Admiral Ross comes on and says, "And you have permission to change the name." And if I was Cisco, I'd be like. Well, we've got to go outside and scrape all the decals off the hull, and then we'd have to make like a, a natty new plat. Why could you just not do that back at Starfleet headquarters? I've got a water fight. I can't be wasting time painting the front of the ship. Fuck it. We'll just leave it as the Sam Pebbler. And I'm and I'm picturing Cisco with a pair of overalls on, sitting outside the ship <laughs> with a little paintbrush. <laughs> Bill, mm-hmm. like the opening credits to Red Dwarf, Bill, the little guy outside the ship. <laughs> yeah. Having to paint Defiant over San Pablo. <laughs> Although, if you watch the sci-fi series The Expanse, they do that, like, really fast because they had to change, like, the markings on, on their ship. And they just go out with, like, this little ma- magic wand that just zip, 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 zip. It just goes right away and puts the new stuff right on. So maybe they've got great advancements by the... Maybe, uh, yeah, maybe they've got great painting advancements. Yes. There's been huge strides. Many painters were put out of work because of this advance in technology. It's a sticker. It's a sticker like on the old Star Wars toys. Just peel and stick. Oh my yeah, God! You gotta wet it. decals. Water slide. It's like the size. You know, it's you know, two sides. It's huge. It's well, like, why, it's like why is it guys not? out there trying to lay this sticker down? Oh, Brian, you ruined the sticker again. Oh, there's a why bubble is, in it. Damn it! Why is it not the Defiant A? No bloody Why is it just the USS Defiant again? Because they could do whatever they want. Oh, I, I will spin it. Is it a different number? I didn't notice. I, I didn't notice whether they have a different registration number either. But the Defiant didn't have a registration number because it was a prototype. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was the thing that jumped out at me is I guess they are past the prototype stage because now they were like, oh, it's a Defiant-class ship. So apparently hmm. it was approved for mass production. Uh, fair enough. In case if the that's the case, why didn't we see any other ones in like the battle? Because they in only anything. made Because the producers of the show only made one one model. Whatever. No, just, yeah, but they're but they're using digital now. They could have just cloned it. Yeah. They could have just popped a whole bunch of them out there. Copy and paste. Yeah, just like the end of Picard. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. Did I say that? Well, that it was, was all really the lazy. same ship. Yeah, it was. Jackasses. Uh, the stuff with Kira and Ducat, not Ducat, the stuff with Kira and, um, I've forgotten his name. Tamar. Tamar, thank you. And Garrick is brilliant. Oh, that's great. I especially love that Garrick and Damar are like, oh, well, we've been beaten. And Kira's like, what the? No, we've not. Get off your asses and let's go and bomb some shit. Oh, I guess. I they're like a bunch of emo guys in the bay. Oh, yeah. I was going to sit here. Oh, man. <laughs> Sit in the basement and clean up all the dust. You got any more of that Cardassian dope over there? I don't know. We're out, dude. Don't they know rebellions are built on hope? Yeah. So I, I love Kira in this one. I thought Kira was Kira was fantastic in this one. And I love the full circle that she's come from fighting the Cardassians to getting the Cardassians to fight. I thought that was really good. Excellent little subplot. 
<laughs> I liked uh, what's her name, Mila, the housekeeper. Yeah. I couldn't cook, but I knew how to keep a secret. Which is probably more important on Cardassia Prime. <laughs> the Quark <laughs> subplot is also really entertaining, which I wasn't really expecting much of. And I love Quark's... What, we're going to look after the environment now? What hippie shit is this in a Star Trek show? <laughs> well, yeah. Look at down there in the... They're down there in the dirt? No, oh, what a... What a <laughs> he's defining animals, and, he, and he's complaining about them. Mm. So, on the one hand, there was a really nice element here of that he has brought Ferenginar forward a little bit in that women are now allowed to wear clothes and take place in profit and all that stuff. But honestly, do we really think Noggy's leadership material? He kind of strikes me as a bit of a John Major, if you knew the Prime Minister John Major. Oh, Jimmy Carter, maybe. He's a Jimmy, nice Carter, enough... Jimmy Carter was pretty smart, actually. He just, well, that's what I mean. He just that's was not a good I mean. president. That's exactly where I was going with it. He's a nice guy. But is he, is he leadership material? And is Nog leadership material? Hmm. No. That's what I mean. And it's like, it's one of those things where, you know, I'm sure it seemed like a good idea at the time, but if we go back to Ferenginar in five years, what are we going to find? Brunt's in charge. Yes! <laughs> Brunt has had Nog assassinated. We'll have Donald Brunt. Oh. Yes! Sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I was going to point out he actually does have a gold-plated toilet, apparently, in the tower. Oh, God. Oh, dear. But anyway, so that I, I like that subplot because I don't think... I think Quark belongs in the bar. But I did love all of the little piss-takery they did of themselves with Quark taking the piss, essentially, out of Picard's The line stops here! Line. <laughs> and that, that little speech was absolutely brilliant. Oh yeah, it that, was, that, I love that they they went back to that. I thought that was good. We've been making fun of that line since since uh, first contact. Now, what 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 was the difference time wise between first contact and this episode? How much time had passed? Well, this came out in ninety nine, didn't it? First contact came out in ninety six. Oh, I want to say. Yeah, you know. So I, we had we'd had insurrection by this point as well, hadn't we? Well, and a lot of people thought the line should have stopped there. <laughs> uh, November of 96 is when First Contact came out. And this is 1999. Mm-hmm. Right. So it, it's and here we are 20 years after that, and, and the line stops here is still a big thing among us. Yeah, it's still a thing that we like to, to rip the piss out of every now and again. But I, I like that it was Ron Moore who wrote that, so it was Ron Moore taking the piss out of himself. Which I thought was a nice touch. I just, I just felt more or less everything about this episode worked. All the subplots oh, yeah, come together nicely. All the different storylines dovetail nicely. The humor of the Ferengi story perfectly complements the drama of the other stuff that's going on. I really enjoyed it, and I, there's there's some nice ambiguity there as well with the Odo subplot where well, Bashir tells Odo about up. Section Thirty One. I thought that was great as well. It it balances everything perfectly. I think I think you know some of the best times we've had with this series is when there's a moral or ethical issue that we have to kind of subject to scrutiny and maybe a little debate and I think uh, I think the Odo issue is one that would do well for us to discuss a little bit more because section 31 developed the disease they distributed it now the federation who abhors section 31's tactics has the cure and can 
fix this wrong, but will not because it will be a tactical disadvantage to do that. Now, I got to say, I agree with what the Federation is doing, but you can't really sit there and commit genocide and say that it's the morally correct thing to do. Well, it may not be morally correct, but you got to win a war, don't you? Well, that's, you know, that's, I guess it goes back to, you know, this, the same fundamental argument we've had so many times of does the ends justify the means? And I'm, I'm sure there are people out there who are more moral than I who would sit there and say under no circumstances is that an acceptable solution to the problem. Do the rules apply in war? Well, you know, I think, I think you, you could look at this as a twofold, you know, uh, moral dilemma. The first one is when Section 31 had the opportunity to develop this illness and did so, uh, you know, if, if, you're, if you're the Federation, you have that power in your hands. You say, I know I can distribute this and it's going to save millions of non-Dominion lives by me doing this. Mm-hmm. Can you justify in your mind doing it? And if the answer to that is yes, then I think the second question becomes moot. Yeah. Well, I mean, you you could also use it uh, in the form of an ultimatum, where look, you're going to get wiped out. We have the cure. Surrender, or let's negotiate a peace. As Put I'm Picard sure the in charge of your do. negotiations, and we'll go forward. Yeah. Right. Surrender. Surrender. <laughs> Yeah, see, in many ways it would have been interesting to put Picard in the same situation that Cisco was in, because we've seen that Cisco is a much harder officer than Picard is. And in many ways I think Cisco is a better officer, because he is frequently willing to make the hard choices. Now, you can argue that the writers always gave Picard an out in his episodes, but we never saw Picard in a war situation. And I think it would be nice to put him in situations like that and see how he would react to this. Because certainly I know we lean more towards the Kirk Cisco end. Well, yeah, it's it's great when everything smells of roses, but when you're in war, you need someone who'll make hard decisions. And yeah, what Section 31 has done is not good, but they're at war. Yeah, I you know honestly, I guess I am a very uh, immoral person because I'm thinking in that situation where they are ready to just kind of subjugate our entire quadrant, uh, I don't know that I would necessarily have a problem with what Section 31 did in the first place. Yeah, in the middle of a war with an enemy that is that implacable and that you really don't think you can win against... You go all out. This is something I recently read about World War II. I was reading Garth Ennis' Battlefields comics, and he has essays at the back of the graphic novels. And one of the things he was talking about was that the Japanese and the Germans were taught to kill, whereas the Allies were taught that's not how we're brought up. We're brought up that life is precious. And one of the things we had to overcome was to get that killer instinct that these guys are going to kill you unless you kill them first. And it was one of the things that they, they, they go into great thing, that they had to instill this into the, the regular guys in the army. And yeah, we, screw instilling it. Let's just drop a bomb on them. Well, so, yeah, that's maybe valid. War, it's very easy for us in our comfort to sit and say that morally this is a bad choice. It's a much more different situation when you're growing up with the ruins of your childhood town around you because of relentless bombing every night. And if somebody says to you, if we do this, we can put an end to this, 
your house doesn't need to be bombed your schools don't need to be bombed you don't need to lose people anymore you'd say f- yeah go for it yeah I, I i'm i'm telling you i i'm not you know i i would be you know i'd be over there with with section 31 saying yeah let's distribute this crap yeah <laughs> me too it's it's one of those things it, it's confronting a side of yourself that you may not necessarily want to confront. But if put yourself in that situation, put yourself in the position of the people who grew up in London and Liverpool, because I'm talking about it from my point of view, you're bombed relentlessly. And someone says to you, you can do this thing, and it's immoral, and it's arguably wrong, but it will end the war. Ultimately, I, I think I just fall on the final, you know, the final result uh way of, of justifying it I'm, I'm going to sit there and I'm going to say if I don't do it what is this existence going to be like and if I do do it what is this existence going to be like and I'm choosing the one where the founders are not subjugating my people yeah that's that's it and it's a, it's a completely different situation to be all slightly wishy-washy about everything and have your moral high standards when we're sat in comfort in the 21st century having never lived through that it's a completely different situation to that being your day-to-day existence. And honestly, there seems to be very little uh, loss of innocent life in this equation, too, because it seems to me like, other than Odo, every one of the founders is on board with the uh, the domination of, of the Quadrant. So it's not like, oh, wow, you know, we're killing a lot of innocent founders. Yeah, but even though, in war, innocent people die... Again, do you think the Germans give a shit that innocent people were dying when they were bombing the f*** out of London? Not in the least. No, they didn't. And that, there's the thing as well. I, I'm not as conservative as you guys. I hope you don't mind me saying that on the earth. I am slightly more left-leaning. But even I'm yes. like, no, if, if you're in that harsh. situation... Yes, I'm a bleeding out liberal. If you... <laughs> If you're in, again, this goes into something I've discussed many, many times before. I was brought up learning about a very different World War II than what you were brought up learning about. Now, that's not me saying you can't understand what they went through, that what my grandparents and my uncle went through. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is if you're in that situation, you would make that choice. If you could end that war tomorrow by doing something that was immoral and you could live with it, then you'd do it. You see, I don't know. That's that's ultimately adding a new new level to the question. I think I could do it. I don't know if after I did it, if I could live with it. Presented with that question, presented yeah. with that question, I would choose the freedom of my people and and take care of what I needed to. But I'm not 100 percent sure that I wouldn't be haunted by it for the rest of my existence. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what makes you human. Well, do you th- I don't do you know. Think, do you think Japan could? Well, I'm going to be wrong with you. I, about I, the bomb. <laughs> I think I could live with it. I'll be honest with you. Having had a front row seat for September 11th, if there yeah. had been a government behind that, yeah, I would have said drop an atomic bomb on them. Okay. And, and there were many nights where I sat there, having gone through Lower Manhattan, and seeing the rubble and the wreckage and the stench and the burning. And frankly, I said to myself, I can't imagine how the English went through this night after night after night after night after night. So, yeah, uh, if, if there had been a government behind that, like a Germany or a Japan or whatever, mm-hmm. total war, 
You knocked down two buildings and killed 3,000 civilians? Yeah, now we fight back with everything. This is total war. We're not playing slap on the wrist game anymore. Hmm. And essentially, that's what Starfleet are doing here. We've already seen they've infiltrated Earth. We've heard that they've taken over Beta Z. We've heard that that's the only problem I have with Deep Space Nine. We've heard all of this stuff because they didn't have the budget to show us. And I agree with Paul that we didn't see the impact of the loss of innocence as much as perhaps we should have. And we didn't lose perhaps as many of the original cast as we should have. Maybe they should have killed off one or two members of the cast just to show us the seriousness of the situation. But ultimately, even though Bashir argues, well, Section 31 isn't technically part of Starfleet, I don't know that what Section 31 is doing is wrong. Immoral, possibly. Something that would cause you headaches or lack of sleep, very probably. But wrong in war? I don't know. If they're doing this in peacetime, that's a different thing. So, uh, if I can jump in here a second. So when I was in the service, I uh, I think I might have mentioned. I don't know if I mentioned it on the show. Uh, I I was a uh, cruise missile technician, and one of my jobs was to launch cruise missiles. So we were not officially at war. However, we were um, would sometimes have to do missions or be places that we would be required. This was during the time of Saddam Hussein. When, when he was still in power, would have been in the in the er, early 90s when I served, and we were tasked to go somewhere over in the Mediterranean and be ready to launch missiles. And it was at that time, for the first time in my military career, that I was confronted with a possibility that something I was going to do could kill someone who could be innocent or a combatant and that was a very weighty uh, thing on my head and there's some letters i remember i had wrote to jen i'm sure she probably has them somewhere or she she burned them laughing now um but it was that was the first time i was faced it was like you know i don't know what we may be called upon to attack um and you know, what if some, what if like the guy, there's a guy in a building who's a janitor who has nothing to do with whatever, and he's killed by something I'm going to do. Now, I never had to actually, you know, things changed, people backed down, we were told to go somewhere else, but I, you know, I know other people have had to do this, you know, make, make these decisions and follow orders. And at the time, I would have followed orders, and I don't know, uh, you know, it's still, I. this discussion has brought it up. It's not something I think about all the time, but it, it's, I mean, you know, you know how I babble on. <laughs> so it's, 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 it's Babylon 5 is a different show, dude. <laughs> yes. It's a very weighty thing to think about when you're actually, I mean, because we weren't officially in at a time of war. This would have been, you know, a retaliatory thing because you know well you're not letting our inspectors in so we were told be ready to launch missiles so it's uh it's definitely a lot to chew on yeah and it's something ron moore would explore much more in battlestar galactica he puts commander adama in a lot more gray situations than he ever put commander cisco into Mm -hmm. do you think you would have felt any different 
if it was a retaliation for something more overt, say like a Pearl Harbor or something like that, or that wouldn't have made a difference? Uh, Probably at the time it would have made a difference. It would have been, you know, it it would have been more, well, yeah, we got to go do this, you know, that type of mentality. Um, But, you know, not really officially being in the time of war and you're like, oh, okay, uh, wow, we might really actually do this. I might really be called upon to do what all the training and everything I was been trained to do. Oh, okay. Hadn't really never, you know, it was always in the back of my head, but, you know, you never really think, you know, or you kind of hoping, yeah, you know, I'm just going to get in and yeah, I'll be ready to serve my country if I'm ca- called upon. But, but you know, when, when it's not an official time of war, it's, you know, it's a right. little different. It's a little different thing to think about. So, yeah, it would have been a different mindset. And if, I, and if we were called upon and we had to fire, I would have fired and lived with the consequences later. I could completely see your point, as opposed, you know, as opposed to a, a Pearl Harbor compared to political maneuvering. Exactly, and that's a lot of what that was back then, especially yeah. in that time frame. Yeah, I could see you know, a big difference. Yes, because that was, I think, I want to say that was. I mean, it blurs. I would have to look at the dates, but I think that was one of the things that we, oh, well, you guys attacked the Tylenol factory because of certain intel and and stuff. So, yeah. And when you're in the middle of the med, you know, news coming to you is not always up to date. You know, you're just being told, go here, be ready, and that's what you do. And then you deal deal with it later. My granddad was in the Navy, and he said the same thing. An awful lot of it is, go there just in case. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time, it doesn't become anything. Right. It is, like you say, it's political manoeuvring or whatever. It's it's dick-waving, essentially. Yeah. But he said, that's that's an awful lot of what you did in the Navy. Go there, be ready. Show us. Yeah, because we, we, we had that on a smaller scale, because we were also monitoring UN flights going into Kosovo back in the 90s, and the, the little patrol boats would come out and they'd light us up with their um, with their targeting radars on their ships. And, you know, we would p- pick it up and then we'd turn around and we'd blast them with our targeting radars too, but things like that. There was, like, the USS Stark in years ago in the, um, uh, what is the Straits of Hormuz was mm-hmm. hit by a missile um, by that same dick-waving. So things can happen. Yeah. You know, when I watched this one, I didn't think we'd get this heavy. <laughs> so uh, let's 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 keep moving the discussion then. Um, what do you think about the way things worked out as far as them betraying, uh, you know, our rebel troops in Cardassia and and how they? Uh, yeah, that was. Uh, I, I thought that was okay. unexpected. I mean, I knew How it was going to happen because I had seen it before, but when the first time I watched it, I thought it was unexpected. I really didn't expect them to all of a sudden end up in a ground war revolution on Cardassia. Yeah, but did I miss something? How did... How, I, maybe it's never really explained, but how did the founders find out about all the cells and destroy them all? Uh, I got... The, the, was, Damar, Damar yeah. contacted his contacts who said, who oh, we, we're, we're going to join you, and then one of them betrayed him and told yeah. the founders. Yeah, but it, actually, but it actually says that in the show. One of the people that Demar trusted right. stabbed him them. in the back. 
Yeah, but that one is high up the chain of oh, people that Demar so trusts and he knew everything. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't like Demar was I thought Kira had isolated them enough so that that wouldn't happen, but I guess somebody effed up. Mm. And then, then you know, you, you had them down there, and then they were hiding in the basement, and uh, finally they came out. And I, I thought the speech by Demar was reminiscent to me of Mel Gibson in Braveheart. Yeah, I, I, think it, I think it was supposed to be. Did and, and, you see on Memory Alpha, did you see Avery Brooks's direction for that? No, I didn't. Glide. You dig? That was it. That was his direction to him. That's where the glide and slalom comes from. Glide. You dig? I love Avery Brooks. <laughs> but, and I, what I liked is when he finished the speech, you know, he, he almost had it, but he needed Garrick to kind of just start the response from the crowd. You know, he was the first one to yell out freedom, and then they all started yeah. chanting it with him. So I, I thought that was kind of a cool touch. Uh, the uh, What's his name? Benny as the new Legate. Uh, what I liked about him is he played the part like Wayun. Oh, they, yeah. found, they found somebody to be the toady uh, for them who, who wasn't going to show any will of his own, who was just going to you know fold to the will of the founders. You know, whereas before that, you know, they had to deal with uh, Damar and before him, uh, uh, what you call it? Uh, what's his name? Uh, who, who had minds of their own. With Benny in this movie from Total Recall, I mean, uh, episode, all I kept thinking is the Cardassians think Damar is effing George Washington. <laughs> I didn't realize it was Benny until you told us that, Bill. Uh-huh. Thank you for looking up that fact. <laughs> yeah, I often try to see who the you know if i don't recognize someone under under the makeup it's like all right who is this person because von uh armstrong is in there too he's one of the he's the guy that was up on the ship that gets smoked within like the opening credits that was a Uh, cool scene it's like down there are us stay on target i can't hold it oh wait no that's the wrong that, that's the wrong one. So, I mean, it's just serendipitous, though, that they were down on the ground mm-hmm. when that happened, because at first I started thinking, when they start announcing to the people, when when Yoon makes the announcement that, you know, Damar is dead and the, the revolution is over, blah, 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 I was wondering, do they know he's alive and they're just trying to spread propaganda to get the no, people? No, I think they thought know, he was dead. Or do they think he's legitimately dead? And then, you know, ultimately I did come to, to the conclusion that they think he's legitimately dead. Because since I watched ahead to the last episode, you could see the the surprise on their face. What? What do you mean he's alive? Alive. Buried alive. Uh, what else? What else have I got in my notes here? Uh, line drawing. Yeah. Well, uh, but just just work, the, the baby Cisco pretty... aspect at the end is the only other note I. Have. Oh, that was dumber than dirt. What the contraceptive of the twenty fourth century requires both parties to take an injection. That's a bullshit contraceptive, then, isn't it? Well, I mean, was she taking? <laughs> Turn your she tea. That she was taking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. She says one of us missed our yeah. injection. Cisco missed his injection, so Cassidy gets pregnant. I guess. I guess that's an effort to try and just push the concept of equality, saying you know you have to both do it. It's only right that both parties have to. Yeah, and know, I can perfectly. I'm perfectly down with that. I am fine. No, with wait a minute, though. The Wouldn't that? 
But if one no, of no, no, you no, no, forgets, no. the on. other gets pregnant. Hold on, yeah. hold on, hold on. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of okay with the idea that only one person has to do it. If that person doesn't want to have any, any procreation, that person has the choice themselves to stop it. Wouldn't yeah. that eliminate the whole argument of women's choice? Mm-hmm. Well, no, 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 no. When you make- when you're when you make the arguments of choice, they're talking about post-conception abortion. No, they're not no, talking about but birth control. Like if you're Catholic, even any contraception. Well, but I don't. I'm, choice, I'm not when, I, uh, when people debate choice, they're talking about abortion. They're not talking. I about know that, but even some people some people consider even using a contraceptive is not acceptable. So, but. It's like, well, well, I didn't do my injection, so sorry, you're pregnant. Well, it's like, well, what was the point of her taking it? It was like, well, I made the decision that I didn't want a kid, but because you screwed up, nah, whatever. Stupid. Yeah, I, I, I think that was just a really stupid contraception. I think it's one of those, if even now, if somebody's on the pill, it doesn't require the male to be to use a condom. Or if the male I is mean, using a condom, the woman isn't required to woman have a pill. Either party can pill. do yeah. something to prevent yeah. conception. The fact that both of them have to take their injections to not for one of them to not get pregnant just seemed really dumb to me in the Enlightenment <laughs> century. It's the plot contraceptive. Yeah, and I, I would imagine they didn't want it to be Cassidy who forgot... Because that kind of paints it in a oh shit light, doesn't it? It's oh I've got I've trapped you, Ben, which is not what they meant at all. Because she's clearly like, I didn't really want another baby. Does, <laughs> she, have, the, does she doesn't have any children though, right? No, she doesn't have any children, no. And would I think the plot receptive? Hey! I just I just thought that was really dumb. They both have to take their injections and if one of them doesn't, the other one gets pregnant. How is that fur? Maybe it isn't both of them, just to be devil's advocate. Maybe it's one week you take it, the next week the other person takes it. Or, or maybe she was just being a little, uh, like a little bit wise-ass coy. Like, you know, one of us forgot to take the contraception. You know? Oh, meaning that they don't both? Oh, I guess you could look at it that way. You know, maybe, maybe it was his responsibility to take it, uh, and right. he didn't, so okay. she's like, one of us forgot. Uh, or may, maybe he was going to do something else and the communicator went off and it startled them. He was thinking about baseball. Buck Bacard. Yeah. <laughs> and, and given how it all turns out as well, I'm, I'm not sure what I think about Cassidy being pregnant. Yeah, from a storyline point of view, I don't. I, honestly, I don't like the thread that that leaves us with at the end. Yeah. yeah. The loose end. But, you know, we're getting ahead of ourselves on that. That we'll talk about next time. Yeah. Any more debates that we have here? No, I think we've we've exhumed this one quite thoroughly. I just think we should never forget it's never too early to suck up to the boss. <laughs> uh, you know, I gotta say, yeah. uh, you know, Andy, you you've you've commented a few times, and I've I've kind of just silently stood by uh, that you don't like the Ferengi episodes particularly. I gotta say, for the most part, I find them amusing. It depends. Little Green Men was amusing. I just sometimes think that the, the magnificent Ferengi was was very impressive. yeah. Well, the, I think they they often went back to the well of Ishka and the Grand Negusek and Brunt a little too many times, and sometimes it just wasn't funny. Oh, and it was I never find... Armin Shimmerman's fault. Armin Shimmerman was always at the top of his game. I always find the Grand Negus to be very amusing, while the Sean just cracks me up. So 
I'm kind of okay with him. Uh, I think maybe they've gone to Ishka a little too much, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with the Ferengi episodes for the most part, and that's that's without looking back to see how I ranked them. And that started a big debate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you know. I guess so. We we've never to... been we've never been shy on this show of disagreeing with each other, which is why I think it's worked. Are we ready to rank? Yeah, I'm giving it five. I think everything about this episode worked. Even Julian and Ezra, which was shit, worked just because of Worf's line. He is a child, and she is <laughs> confused. And I'm injecting yeah. them out of an airlock. I'm also <laughs> on, a, on a five with this one because. Even the... <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I've just imagined Wolf finishing that sentence with, and besides, I have already had her. I think that the, the Ezri-Bashir thing kind of needed to be taken care of. It needed to be resolved. And I think, I, I think they did it in a fairly quick and efficient way where it, you know, it didn't drag the rest of the show down, so I had no problem with it. So I'm, I'm at five also. Uh, I'll give it five missed injections. That's five little Cisco's. Five little Cisco's. <laughs> I uh, I give it five as well. The only slow point was Ezri and uh, Bashir, but they resolved it pretty quickly. It was pretty humorous. So five. Okay, so that's it for what we think. Do we have a song for what Blaine thinks? I think Blaine's having my baby. Because <laughs> he misses oh, injections. <laughs> and i got to ask him what he thinks. Are you going to ask him what for Alamona? It would be blaine Amoni. It, <laughs> it would be Cisco support. It would not be Alamona. Cisco support. I need some Cisco support, please. So Blaine says, well, Rom gets his ending. Spoiler warning, he's not in the series finale. Ferenginar finally starts to move forward. To me, that feels a bit forced. Sure, it's funny to see Rom in charge, and there's a history of using the second last episode of the season to give us a funny Ferengi episode, but even with Ishka's influence over Zek, it's hard to imagine that these reforms would have been so easily accepted. I guess that there was more strife and unrest in the Ferengi culture than we ever knew. Having seen only limited segments of it... Oh, excuse me. More than we ever knew, having seen only limited segments of it. Hey, there were they were wrapping up the series. Voyager would be the, the only trek on the air for the foreseeable future, and that wasn't anywhere close to the Alpha Quadrant. So they really could do whatever they wanted, and they did it well. Also, it gave us a great joke tying back to First Contact. I also appreciate the decision to leave Quark on the station. It's where he belongs. More interesting, I think, were the scenes on Cardassia Prime. The secret mountain hideaway conversation was beautifully delivered by all involved, and the power of Damar's reputation comes through for all. This is part of the build-up to the big finish. I'm only writing one email for it, so if you're treating it as a single two-hour episode, great, because the... because that's how I viewed it. If you guys are splitting it to part one and part two, as per the way it was rerun in syndication, then don't read my email until the second part of the conversation. Blaine. Well, we're going to do it as one episode, Blaine, so don't you worry yourself. Yeah, cutting it in two seems seems rather silly, to be honest with you. Yeah, because we're not in syndication. Yes, we can do what the hell we like. Yeah, although we've got enough episodes, I think we could go into syndication. Yeah, we're going to start a streaming service. 
$9.99 a month. <laughs> you get all, you know, I, all of the episodes that way. You know, as to Blaine's point about Ferengana, you know what would have made it work better if uh, Ferengana had been either attacked by the Dominion or they were involved in the war effort and it was the uh, crisis situation in addition to Ishka that got all these reforms passed so quickly. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think they did. They did possibly miss a talking point opportunity by not ha- by having Fring and all pretty much go untouched by the war. So I do not disagree with you. But. So yep. that will be it for the penultimate episode of the series, not necessarily of our podcast just yet. Uh, and uh, we'll see you all in two weeks. Goodbye. Goodbye. Oh no, we're not on next time. Although doesn't everybody know what's next time? Oh, what are we doing next time, Andy? Um, I don't know actually. I don't know what's on the, the docket for next time. I can't imagine. Um, I mean, this is it, right? Oh no! Next time. What we left behind. Beyond the farthest star. A war rages on. Prepare to engage the enemy. At the edge of the final frontier. It will be a glorious battle. The fate of humanity is in doubt. Millions of people are dying. One man's destiny awaits. Promise that you'll come home to us. One last battle has begun. What do you say we end this war? The end of a legend is upon us. A television event for now and forever. Witness the two-hour series finale. Star Trek Deep Space Nine, the final chapter. The last ever Deep Space Nine. We've done it. Seven freaking years, guys. It seemed insurmountable when we started. And yet here we are. Bill, you got to say goodbye. Screw you! Listen to the Prophets at Deep Space Nine Podcast is a two true freaks presentation. It is hosted by Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright CBS and Paramount Entertainment. If you like to buy stuff from Amazon, and who doesn't, why not drop by the twotruefreaks.com website, where if you click the little link that we have there, it will take you straight through that site, and whilst it won't cost you any extra, we'll put a few shekels in our tip jar, which helps create content like this. We very much hope you enjoyed listening to The Prophets. Every episode is dedicated to the memory of our pal, Sean Engel. The moon raker goes underneath its bank of gold. These aren't the lyrics, but I don't care.